May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. About 16 years ago, I tried to become a priest, and the church said no. I think I was too young in their eyes, or something. But as a result of that, I decided to do a PhD in philosophy. <laughs> you know, because like, why not? <laughs> um, I had some extra time, I was like chaplain at the university, I had done a master's in philosophy, and uh, so I went to my advisor, I was like, I want to be a priest. Episcopal Church is taking forever. Can I do a dissertation on philosophy and God? <laughs> and uh, he, was, he was really intrigued by that. So for the next five years, I lived in a library, you know, and I talked to people about God, and I read a lot about God, and I wrote a lot about God, and I was a chaplain, and it was pretty good. At the end of that time, I was ready to not be in a library anymore and to be out amongst the people talking about the stuff that I had been doing in the library. And I like went to some churches, went to some various organizations, but one of the more interesting ones that I went to was in the philosophy department, there were several people who are in this organization called the Society of Free Thinkers. And the Society of Free Thinkers were mostly atheists, um, I think. Uh, it's like the local atheist club. And I knew a couple of the leaders, and I said, I would love to come to your group and talk to them about God. <laughs> and, well, they had, I mean, in fairness, in fairness, they, they had done, like, lots of debates about, like, the believing in God, the rationality of God or whatever. And I thought, you know, um, uh, would you like to hear the other side of the story, you know, the free thinkers? And there was a lot of negotiations back and forth about me coming. Uh, eventually they said yes, and I went, and it was in the public library, and about, I'd say about 100 people uh, there, and it was a really interesting group. I think about a third of them thought, did I accidentally walk into the wrong group space? <laughs> What's going on? And then um, a third of them uh, knew what was happening and they heckled me uh, the entire time, like laughing and jeering, you know? And um, that had never happened to me before and it was a really interesting experience. And then a third of them had never heard the version of God that I was presenting and they were floored, really interested. Uh, I didn't do like an altar call or anything like that, but you know, they came to me afterwards, they're like, oh, you know, I grew up in the church and I've never heard someone talk about God the way that you did. And uh, at the end, the guy that I knew the best got up in the mic and said, I only have one question for you. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And 
Um, it was not a moment for me to say, what do you mean by the resurrection of Jesus? Uh, I just said yes. And he literally like rolled his eyes, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, so I lost him on that day. But it's made me think ever since then that so often when we hear some of the central stories of the Bible and of our faith, what we imagine them to be, and this is true of people who are way outside the faith and I think way, way inside the faith, is that so many of these central doctrines are, um, are uh, super big theoretical thing, structures that we've got to like get our hands around in a really difficult way. The gospel this morning presents a, what I'd like to say is a radically different picture. Jesus begins his ministry with these words, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, the kingdom of God has come near. Um, ever since I joined the Episcopal Church, that sense of the kingdom of God has come near has something, has been something that I've really tried to um, explore and make real. Thinking about those words, Jesus is not saying, Jesus is saying the opposite, I think, of what it's easy to think belief in God is. Belief in God is about the things that are near us. God is not far away, but close by. Coming to see that, to feel it, I think just is what we often call conversion. When we hear about the resurrection or the incarnation, when we can see it as something near, it becomes real. One of the concepts I think we have um, uh, the most difficult time with uh, is the concept of sin. So the first word that Jesus uses is repent. And if you're anything like me, when you hear the word sin, I think of Jesus or God wanting to personally shame me for my personal failings. I mean, I've just for my, <laughs> too long, it, both in the church and just our cultural uh, milieu that's like soaked this stuff in, have only been able to think of sin as God wanting to shame me for my personal failings. It's almost impossible to think about sin apart from that. But looking at the life of Jesus, uh, that just doesn't happen um, uh, very much, if at all. Looking at Jesus, it's really interesting and instructive to look at the battles that Jesus picked, that Jesus fought. Um, almost never does Jesus um, uh, go out of his way to 
uh, confront people for those type of personal failings. Again and again, Jesus attacks the institutions around him. Religious institution, which is often the synagogue, and also the political institution represented by Herod. So just one example. Early on in Jesus' ministry, just after he says, repent for the kingdom of God has come near, he walks into a synagogue and there's a man there who has a withered hand. And uh, Jesus calls him forward and it says that the Pharisees were there, the scribes were there watching him to see if he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And uh, Jesus says, turns, he's got the man come forward, and he turns to the Pharisees, the scribes, and he says, is it better to kill or to heal on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? And they were silent, it says. And they were silent. So he turns to the man, and he heals him. And the scribes answer Jesus because they go out it says they conspire with the Herodians, the aristocratic leaders of Galilee, to kill Jesus. Later in that story, um, Jesus' family is alarmed by Jesus' action, healing somebody on the Sabbath in a synagogue. They go to Jesus, and they try to bind him. Uh, it's like the Greek word for arrest. And... Uh, Jesus answers them um, by saying, um, those who, by, he says like, you know, he's asking who's my family. He says he's looking at the people around him in the house, the poor that have been following him. He said, those who do the will of God are my mother and brother and sister. Okay, what Jesus is interested in so often is he goes into churches, to synagogues, to religious institutions, and he says, those people that you have excluded, you must let them in. He goes on a campaign to feed the hungry, to step into the breach for places that have institutionally subjected people to poverty and to hunger and to sickness and discarded them as a result. That, that is Jesus's idea of sin. When we as an institution systematically exclude people from the house of God, um, from lives of, uh, of flourishing, when we systematically um, push people into uh, poverty and sickness. Do nothing to alleviate them. Again and again, that is Jesus's picture of sin. The kingdom of God has come near. When I think about the problems facing our culture, our city, our country, so often, Jesus's two recommendations for turning from sin is one, often, two, leave your family. By that, he means 
We can't be concerned only for our, the people who are related to us, our own tribe. If we do that, we're not going to pay attention to the sick and the wounded and the poor. Related to that, Jesus teaches again and again and again, part of leaving your family also means to leave money behind. Leave your family and leave your money. Thinking about questions of equity, of not just race, but of poverty, I think of Jesus' central image for what sin is and how to address it as perfectly relevant and prescient, something worth meditating on for our own lives. The kingdom of God has come near. It's the first part. Second part of the story is Jesus calling the disciples. And just notice, Jesus gives, Matthew gives us a perfect image of what it means to follow Jesus. The fishermen are with their family. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Jesus calls them, and they leave the nets behind. They leave their economic security behind, and immediately, the text tells us twice, follows Jesus. Part of what it means, I think, part of what it means to understand Jesus' call to repentance is that if we truly understand what he means by sin, it will change us. We will lead different lives. We won't make a plan to lead different lives. We will live different lives. We'll identify the sick, the hungry, the poor, the sin that is in our community, in our world, and we will turn and try to change it. In the name of God.